Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End, with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thanks for downloading episode one of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End, or if you want to contact us, then email us on Inside the West End at gmail.com. Coming up, we have a great conversation with Tim Minchin. Rob, tell us how you know Tim. So I was in Jesus Christ Superstar with Tim. Uh, a few months ago, I went for lunch with him. He was telling me all about his new musical, Groundhog Day. Uh, I told him about this podcast. He loved the idea. So we thought we'd get him on and talk to him on the first episode about his brand new musical. Yeah, now he's been asked to do quite a few interviews on Groundhog Day, but we were lucky enough to get the first one. So if you listen closely, you'll even hear a clip of the cast singing upstairs. Yeah, because we were lucky enough to get invited down to the studio where Tim was workshopping Groundhog Day. Uh, we chatted to him on his break. The cast was still working upstairs, so that's where you get to hear them. Uh, just to warn you, in case there are any younger listeners uh, out there who have downloaded this, there is a little bit of swearing on it. And also, Tim was very keen on us playing the following message to any journalists listening out there. Please don't take anything I say and make it a headline as if it's the thing I think most in the world. Yeah, Tim was quite adamant on that. Uh, so take from that what you will. And journalists, please listen. Anyway, so here it is, episode one of Inside the West End with Tim Minchin. This is Tim Minchin and you're listening to Inside the West End. Tim Minchin. Yes. Welcome to Inside the West End. Thanks. What stage are we at? Now, this isn't the first workshop you've done. No, this is workshop three. In fact, workshop four, because one was aborted. Um, and sorry, there's an Irish person in the house. Shouldn't use that word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the first one we kind of weren't ready for. And then, and then, yeah, we've done three proper workshops. And this one is all about starting to experiment with how the hell we're going to do it on stage. Because it's complicated. So when did this idea come about, the Groundhog Day? Is this something you've had, or did someone approach you with it? No, Matthew Watchers, who directed Matilda, sometime after Matilda hit the West End, not that long after, like some years ago now, maybe three years ago, said, rang me up or during conversation said, I think our next project should be Groundhog Day. And I went, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, but how do you get it? Because last I heard, Sondheim had it as an idea and then I don't know the the rights seem to have I didn't really know much about it but I was skeptical how do we approach asking for the rights and he said well I will work on it and so we actually just met Danny who wrote the movie he's been interested in it for years and he owns the theatrical rights along with Sony or whoever and anyway we just met him and got chatting and actually spent a hell of a lot of time working on it um, kind of unofficially just because we didn't want it to have a huge amount of pressure on it and stuff so I've been thinking about and working on Groundhog Day for two and a half years or something So when you say you knew like Sondheim had you thought Sondheim might have the rights like how did you know that? You, had, well, had, he, was this an idea you thought of? No, well he came out I just it's just musical theatre knowledge that um, 
that Sondheim had said in an interview in 2003 that the only, apropos movie-to-stage adaptations, you know, people, everyone's like, well, so, Stephen, what do you think about this new fangled idea that you put movies on stage? And he said something along the lines of, I think it's shit. The only idea I would do is Groundhog Day. That's the only idea that intrigues me, using a film as a source text. For various reasons, he um, decided not to do it. When you come to the first workshop, how much of a finished article are you presenting? Well, it varies wildly depending on who's writing it and what the project is because I think some shows probably benefit from you go and you're doing frickin' Peter Pan or The Light Princess or something abstract um, and you think... I've got these songs and I've written a few things, I've got some ideas and let's get some people to sing them and we'll literally workshop some ideas and we'll start putting it together. At the other end of the scale is Groundhog Day, which to me is like a Sudoku puzzle. And so when Danny and I and Matthew first started working on it, um, it's sticky notes and beats, and which is how Matilda came about too. I, I don't think I'll ever... I, pr- I probably won't ever be the sort of person to do that first type of workshop, the kind of organic, let's see how it feels, because I don't, I don't work like that. I don't, I don't, I can't imagine it, can't imagine enjoying it, can't imagine getting anything out of it, because to me, if a story is worth telling on the stage, like I don't know if a story is worth telling until I know what the story is, and it's why I do love Groundhog Day, because it's quite... Um, you don't have infinite options about how to tell it. I mean, you could do a version of Groundhog Day that's totally different, but I didn't want to do that. I love the structure of it. I want to tell a version of Danny's original screenplay on stage in the way... That's how I see it, by the way. The source text is the screenplay, not the film. Mm. And it's incredibly important to me that everyone understands that, not in the public, I mean, in, in this process. I mean, the movie is Harold Ramis and Bill Murray and, you know... Mm their whole mob's interpretation of Danny's screenplay. This is our version of interpretation of Danny's screenplay in a completely different genre. No, none of the same choices of soundtrack or songs, obviously, because the songs are all original or actors. Or, you know, and, and when you've got a movie like Groundhog Day, that was so defining for the career of a man who's uh, an actor whose style is iconic um, and who, I mean, Bill's... Bill Murray's brilliant, but he's he's always slightly in front of his character. You know, there's a like, there's always Bill, um, which is why he's kind of a genius. Um, but anyway, it's, it has to be utterly discarded from one's mind. It's then that's the big risk of it because people love that, but we're not making it. We can't make that. It'd be mm. absurd to try and make Bill Murray sing mm. or a character like that sing. Yeah. You know, having said that, we're incredibly loyal to the ideas and weirdly as a result of these workshops we've discovered that our stage version which you can hear being sung in the background um i'm very distracted by that um uh, (laughs) i'm sitting here thinking oh legally is this going to be a problem (laughs) (laughs) no it's going to be fine um it's a weird bit of the music i mean it's the yeah it's that's it's a strange bit to hear first um the result of these workshops is that when the people have watched it sort of are kind of surprised by the fact that it does the same thing. It has that, it has all the lovely warmth of the movie and the comedy and the satire and stuff. It just achieves it all in a totally different way. 
I think it's going to be all right. Do the yeah. actors in the room, in a workshop, ever make you look at it differently, your writing, or does it make you ever readdress or change anything? Yeah. Being an actor in a workshop, you've, you've done it, um, is, is kind of hard because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really graft. Um, but from a creator's point of view, you're, you're trying your work out, you know, and, and they can... And you have to be careful of... Obviously, there's so many variables, so you're, you're trying lines out and songs out for the first time, and you've got to be careful because it could work brilliantly because the person that you've got doing the workshop happens to be able to totally sell that idea but you have to keep in mind that, that most people might not be able to. So there might be someone who can sell Ice to the Eskimos, an actor who can make anything work. Mm. Well, it's kind of dangerous because you get fooled into thinking your writing is good because some charming fucking actor, someone like Bill Murray, who can sit slightly ahead of their character, who might have limitations in other ways, has this ability to kind of... So, so you don't want to get seduced into thinking just because you've seen it work, that definitely works, but it's certainly heartening. And on the other end of the scale, you might see something not work and you don't want to get fooled that that means it doesn't work. It just might mean that the actor's not got it or, you know, they're not quite right for the job. So how do you identify the difference? Well, it's a constant frickin' confidence. The whole point about making original work is you have to try and find objectivity when actually inside you're a mess, you know. You're so subjective. And, like, this week during this third workshop, three years after I started trying to write this with Danny um, I kind of have no idea whether it's any good did you feel uh, the same with Matilda at this stage can't remember but I think I felt that I felt this with everything I've ever done of course I mean you just just waves I said it to the Mount View students two weeks ago these waves just come so and come and come of confidence it, and self-loathing is that a case of just keep going yeah you got to keep, keep going, going. See what. And at some point, you've got to take heart from... I, I'm in the lucky position now where over the last few years I've made quite a few different sort of things that have worked all right, and I've always gone through this. So I, I, I've got a bit of... Uh, I can go, but you always feel like this, Tim, so just don't overreact, you know. When something gets cut, a song you really like, it doesn't serve, serve the piece. Yeah. Is that a massive blow? Um, it depends. I mean, Matilda things got cut. Um, that I really liked and yeah no, it was really really hard and you just have to stop for a while and ignore it and come back a few weeks later and try and have some clarity but the things that got cut out of Matilda were absolutely correct and fundamental to how it worked out um, What happens to those songs? Do they sit on a shelf and you ever revisit them in a different context or do they just disappear? Well I hope not because if you ever write something so sort of pop that it can be placed in another story, you're probably not doing a very good job. Like, there are many, many musicals written these days where the songs are pretty generic, and I like to think, oh, that's not anything to do with what I do. I don't think Miracle or Quiet or any of the... could be in any other musical. I mean, they're, of, they're built of the harmonic DNA of that show. I mean, Quiet and the opening of the Hammer song... The opening of them are both the same thing. They're both the same harmonic build and the beginning of Bruce as well. So it's like it, it, it belongs, you know. Yeah. So once it's gone, it's Once gone. it's gone, it's out. It was appropriate only for that. There's ideas that you can take from discarded work or, or work that's no longer in the world. 
and I do that all the time. I'm constantly going back over the many, many songs I wrote in my 20s that no one ever heard and going, what was good? I can just take that idea. Day one of, of yeah. writing a musical, like Groundhog Day, yeah. or any, any musical, when you go, right, here we go, off, off, here I go to write a musical now, yeah. where, do you, where do you begin with the structure of the piece? Is that, is that yeah, your method? Yeah, absolutely, for months and months. So I've got a photo of 70 sticky notes on the window of Lloyd Webber's apartment, actually, because I happened to be staying there because he liked me while I, <laughs> while I was doing Jesus Christ Superstar. I think he still likes me but I was able to do things like can I stay in your apartment I'm in New York um, and against the window overlooking Central Park is just all the beats of Groundhog Day so um, horizontally you've got the beat numbers and vertically you've got the details of that beat so it's like prologue these two things happen um, you know wake up day one day one so the first first Groundhog Day February 2nd and then the beats that happen and, and then you have a coloured a coloured sticky note for where people sing. And in, in Matilda, it was like a flow chart that had different colours w- representing whether or not it was a solo or a chorus thing. Um, and then I had another flow chart that, that showed sort of stylistic. So this is a, you know, a Latin thing and this is a ballad and this is a thing. And, and so before you even start writing, there's no point writing a bunch of songs for a musical week, oh, they'll sing that there, and then look back after you've written 12 songs and spent four months on the thing and go, oh, there's three chorus numbers in a row and they're all 120 beats a minute. Like, this is just me theory. I don't know shit about shit and I don't know anything that anyone else does, but this is me theory. Like, once you go, okay, the ebb and flow of this is going to be right, the personal moments versus the macro moments and the ballads versus the thing and what, you know, what sort of stylistically it's going to be and... And what sort of, when are we going to need energy? When are, we, when are the audience going to be feeling? What are they going to be feeling? And what, what, how are we going to support the narrative emotionally with what stars? All before I start writing. How did you learn to do this? I, I did. Is, is it literally, because you didn't study as a writer as no. such, but is this just something trial and error? Like you're talking about beats and flow and flow charts and, and all this stuff. Is this just something you have self-talk kind of yeah it's just yeah I think so I must have accumulated stuff I must have got received stuff but I mean look the weird thing about where I'm at at the moment is I've had a good decade you know but I've only had one musical that worked and make no mistake that's Dennis Kelly Matthew Watchers Rob Howe Peter Darling Hugh Vanstone the Royal Shakespeare Company like all I did is not fuck it up too much yeah I think it's all right. I think it's I think it's a wonderful musical, but I don't think the reason it succeeded is me. Yeah, yeah. So anything I say about what I think about musicals is absolute bullshit uh. until Groundhog Day works. And then if Groundhog Day works, then I can start thinking maybe I'm doing something right. But again, it's Matthew Watchers, Danny Rubin, yeah, Rob so Howell, Peter Darling. Yeah, yeah, so you get a cog. Yeah. In, so I'm you started a, talking I'm about a, structure after that. You just call me a cock. Yeah, you're a fucking cog. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you start talking about structure off the back of a question about are you, did you ever I don't know why I did that what yeah, I was going to do that I don't cog. know why I just <laughs> I, I want to talk about being a cog um, I wrote for some reason I thought I should write Groundhog Day so that no one except me could play the role of Phil 
We were going to ask you if you've ever been tempted to write a role for yourself. Well, I, I think I want to, and especially with my comedy stuff, because I sort of did comedy for about five years and really haven't done it for five I'm sort of semi-retired for no other reason than I got distracted by this wonderful, yeah. wonderful thing I get to do, making theatre and films and, and, and getting back into acting. And I think my, the revival of my love of theatre, which never really went away, but uh, from which I was distracted by comedy, has made me think... My, my, my comedy's always been very theatrical and I should let it keep leeching in, I think. But, I've, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I get really stressed by the fact I haven't acted for ages. So for two years there I went, OK... Things have gone well with comedy, things have gone well with Matilda. I bought myself the right to see if I failed as an actor because I was shit or whether I failed as an actor through lack of opportunities, right? Because you just don't know, do you? Like, I, I was an unsuccessful actor, but I was from Perth. I mean, everyone's an unsuccessful... There is no such thing as... Yeah. So anyway, I, when I was writing Groundhog Day, probably because of that, probably because I've got this everlasting chip on my shoulder about being an actor, um, I kind of thought, this is a story about a... This, this role requires a comic actor who can do drama, sing in a two-octave range and play piano. So I wrote this thing where he gets good, you know, on the piano. And, and in my head it happened on stage, you know. Um, but I think I knew I was just sort of uh, entertaining the idea because it's not the right thing for me and I'm not the right person for the job and I wouldn't sign for an 18-month contract anyway because I'm busy. But, um, but, of course, it means now that we won't cast someone who can play and we can get away with that with stagecraft but, and everything else. There's, there's plenty of actors who can do the rest of it. So I would love to do this role. And, and I do sit in the room and think it would be fun, but actually not as much as I thought I would. When I wrote this role, when I wrote all the, the musical parts of this role and Danny wrote the book and I thought fuck this would be so good but actually in the room I just I know that I'm not right for it and I'm thinking about other stuff I'm not I'm not sitting there um coveting being up on stage doing that bloody first day over and over and over again I'm thinking how can that be better musically you know I I find it easy to segregate Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We're going to have a different guest on every week. Stay tuned at the end. We're going to have a little teaser of who's on the next episode. So don't miss that. Now back to Tim Minchin. When you're writing a musical, do you have to be aware of what is currently commercially successful? Or do I you am not. You're I not. have no idea. Yeah. What do you mean you've no idea? I don't care. Yeah. I don't listen to the radio and I don't go see musicals. I, I, I think musicals are about finding, using your palette, your skill set, which range for some musos from knowing eight chords and being able to play the guitar to geniuses. And it's somewhere in the middle is someone like me who's, I can play, I've got a reasonably broad palette, but it's limited to what I, what I understand. And using that palette, find the best way to emotionally support narrative and and so many musicals I feel like all I can say about writing the only thing I can say that I think I'm right about is that most musicals fall down at the who sings what where phase and that's what I'm talking about mapping and you know you said why how do you know that I have no idea I, I did write a lot of music for theatre when I was young and maybe I inherited some stuff and maybe I'm wrong but I suspect most musicals that don't work very well at the very beginning, when they said who sings what where, 
they didn't make great decisions. Lots of people can write songs, but not many people seem to be very good at who sings what where. Mm. Maybe I'm shit at it too. Like maybe I got lucky working with Dennis, and and you know, but I'm pretty sure that's the key. Mm. Lots of people can write songs, but not many people can decide when is the opportunity in a narrative to say something in song. And in saying something in song, you have an opportunity to do things that you can't do in narrative. So how do you best exploit that opportunity? And the opportunity is that in song, you get to say something about where the character is at personally, say something where the narrative is at broadly, and say something about the world more broadly. And pretty much all songs should do all three things, right? They should help us understand how the character's feeling, give us a bit of a context about the story, and reflect our lives. And that's what songs are for in mm. musicals, right? The narrative is driving the story. The songs are these moments where you pop out and can say, when that fucking whoever sings, I dreamed a dream in days gone by, she's saying something about how she's feeling. She's saying something about what it would be to be that character in that world, but she's saying something about us and all mm. our dreams and all the things we lost and all our regrets. And when the kids in Matilda sing When I Grow Up, they're talking about where they are in the story. It's reflecting an emotional place that Miss Honey's in and Matilda's in. And it's saying something about all of us and our lost dreams of childhood and stuff, right? Mm. So if you don't approach your narrative and look at where the songs could be with that in mind as their role, and this is not something I've read or I don't know if it aligns with something other people who write musicals say, but that seems clear, doesn't it? Am I not just articulating what's absolutely obvious in musicals yeah. that succeed? You can't second-guess the market. That's I mean, right, I deal yeah. with this in Hollywood every frickin' day. They're going, well, Frozen worked. And you're like, well, only because it just did its own thing a bit. You mm. know, even though it's a princess movie, it managed to do it differently, and it did it by not being too reactive. So let's not react to it, you know. like Surely trying to second-guess the market is how you fail. Yeah, yeah. In all art. Yes, or or yeah. at best you'll make something mediocre. Yeah. You, you talk about all these different projects, things going on at once, lots of things. Um, LA, Groundhog Day, Matilda mm. ongoing. How do you switch off? Well, maybe it's wine. Mostly. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty good. I, think I, 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 I do drink wine in the evenings, not heaps. I'm not a binge drinker, but I think I probably am a bit dependent on the medicinal value of an evening red. Um, and I used to run a lot and I can't now because of injury but I exercise a lot believe it or not which is offset by the wine when we came into the into the room here you went to the corner picked up a basketball threw it at the wall a few times picked up a skip and roll <laughs> did a few minutes while we were setting off the microphone is yeah that- well, well on a day like today I was meant to go to the gym this morning but as I said I was awake last night so I wrote so I thought I'll just wear my, my running togs and I'll just do what I'll, you I'll just do you, some shit yeah yeah I really, really love exercising and I'm mountain biking and stuff in LA. That's one of the good things about LA is um, I've taken up mountain biking. Do you hike? That's the classic. Like, uh, yeah. I'm hike. like, why do you call it a hike? It's just going for a walk. <laughs> but actually, if you saw the hills out the back of our place, it is a freaking hike. It's a nightmare. But um, yeah, uh, look, I, I, I have a... I work pretty hard, but I'm... I think people would be surprised if they were interested, which they're not, at what our home life's like. And I, I deliberately took the job in LA so that I can be a normal person. So I, the kids go to school and then I go to work and then I'm back in time for bath and bed and all that. So that the whole point of Larrikins is not being a touring 
which is against instinct because of course when you've worked to be able to perform live as much as I have you just want to fucking go you just want to rock you know and so it's all pretty mellow you know and I, I I'm a bit anxious today but I'm not in general you mentioned beat poetry with Groundhog Day you considered it well here's the thing with Groundhog Day and again I'll, I shouldn't give too much away but Groundhog Day is a conundrum and everyone who says oh you're doing Groundhog Day that's just one song over and over again right and but if you were adapting it the I imagine the first thing you think and I wonder if the first thing Steve Sondheim thought was oh well it's going to be a, an interesting musical exercise in motifs and adjusted motifs in, in repetition and uh, a music that kind of slowly corrupts as things change like and so you think well there's going to be a lot of repeated lyrics and songs and stuff but of course I realise that I think that's totally wrong this repeated day of course songs function to tell us something about the character and what they're going through so if Phil sings something on the first day he's not going to sing it on the second day because the fucking situation's changed he's waking up thinking great I get to go home to Pittsburgh today and he looks out and the weather's a bit the same and then the thing on the radio and he's like and he's like he's thinking that's a bit weird anyway pop downstairs and then it's like okay something's wrong and so you always sing the same thing and so I realised actually it's a very traditional musical and most importantly what, what repeats is action and dialogue of the world around him and if you lock that into a grid if you Lin-Manuel it and made it hip hop as soon as you're doing something rhythmic and it's in a it's in the grid our brains as an audience go well they're singing that song again and so you lose all your dissonance the whole the weird thing about Groundhog Day is that someone goes good morning you know go on, go on after the gobbler's knob see the groundhog and, and that repeats but if he goes good morning after gobbler's knob see the groundhog you're like oh they're doing a song again and the dissonance isn't there the dissonance has to be in the naturalistic repetition of the dialogue and the events that happen and then the music needs to represent what the fuck that means to him and later what the town has to say about shit and stuff. So I realised that gridding it in would fuck with that. Groundhog Day is about life and about what the stages of life we go through, about hubris and arrogance and eventually mindfulness, basically, learning to just be happy with where you are in the moment you are. It's a sort of Buddhist thing, obviously. And... Um, and so the, the point is he changes utterly. He, the way he decides to interact with this world alters completely. And as a result, the people around him are altered. So, um, so in a weird way, our musical is... Ah, fuck, I shouldn't say anything about it. But it's quite a traditional musical. But it works. We ask everyone at the end of every interview if they can give us a bit of advice uh, for anyone who wants to work inside the West End. My advice is, I think probably the best thing I've ever come up with is to to work very hard on what you're doing at the time and not think too much about whether it's ticking off a, uh, whether it's another step in your ladder because your ladder won't take you where you think it's going to mm. so don't worry too much about whether what you're doing is sort of functionally contributing to your achievement of some arbitrary long term goal you've set yourself just like whatever you're doing see if you can be fucking amazing yeah. at it Great. Like, and that's hard if you're doing a year long run and you're a swing or whatever but but they're all the best people are just obsessed they're just fucking good at what they're doing now 
And if you're amazing at what you're doing now, the next job you get will be a bit better. A big thank you to Tim for taking the time to speak to us. We actually spent an hour and a half speaking to him about Groundhog Day and lots of other things. So please subscribe because there will be a part two. And when that's ready, it will just appear. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Inside West End. Remember to stay tuned to the very end for a clip of the next episode. But before that, we make this podcast for free. If you've enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make future episodes, then here's how you can. Next time you shop online with Amazon, visit InsideTheWestEnd.com first. Click on any of our adverts for Amazon to access their site. Your shopping will cost you exactly the same as normal, but Amazon will give us a small kickback on any of your purchases as a thank you. Also on InsideTheWestEnd.com, you'll see a donate button. If you'd like to make a direct contribution, then click on the button and follow the link. Now, as promised, we have a clip of the next episode with West End leading man, Killian Donnelly. Thanks for listening. What did you have for breakfast? I got a Nutribullet, but it's just getting cobwebs in the corner. Have you, how many times did you use your Nutribullet when you bought it? I've, I, I've gone through phases of like, when I first got it, I reckon for the first month, I was like, I was basically a vegetable. Yeah. And then I didn't use it for six months. Yeah. And then last week, or the last few weeks ago, I suddenly felt guilty and started using it again. Yeah, I've got one thing I put in it. So to get all those ingredients, which I'm is like, beer. which is <laughs> Guinness. bananas and beer. <laughs> <laughs>